This morning's scripture reading comes from the second chapter of the book of Matthew, verses 13 to 23. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. It is um, quite humbling to be entrusted with this morning's sermon. Thank you. Late 19th, 20th century humorist Finley Peter Dunn used one of his characters, Mr. Dooley, to pen. The newspaper does everything for us. It runs the police force and the banks, commands the militia, controls the legislature, baptizes the young, marries the foolish, comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable, buries the dead and roasts them afterwards. You've no doubt heard the one part, which historically, although falsely attributed to theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, which many of us preachers have gone ahead and appropriated. That which states that the preacher's job is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And now that you have the true origin story, consider yourself duly warned. 
Now, I'm also sure that you've noted that most preachers like to take this particular week off between Christmas and New Year's. And we say it's because we're tired, which is true. Or that there isn't much going on. We won't touch that. (laughs) But really, it's because we don't like preaching on this particular text. This particular pericope, which sounds horrendous, the slaughter of the innocents. And I'm assuming that most people in the pews don't particularly care for this either. I would also venture that most of us would like to be able to immerse ourselves in the sanitized version of the nativity stories, the sweet ones, where the animals, ironically, are softly breathing warmth on the babe and singing songs of angels and hope and joy. We often like to indulge in the sentimentality of the season, don't we? Are allowing ourselves to perhaps ignore the intention of the story, that God entered and continues to enter the world under the most vile circumstances, demonstrating profound love and solidarity with those whose suffering and social status pushes them to the margins. And while perhaps this is not typical of how most of us experience this season, Every one of us certainly understands suffering and grief. In fact, I would argue that these experiences, more than any other human experience, bind us to those on the margins, to those who would be the most likely in some capacity, in some expression, those who would be most at risk for being slaughtered. Now, this is typically where a lot of progressive preachers would take today's readings in an attempt to make it more pertinent in today's world. We like to analyze it, intellectualize it, and that, that way we don't have to truly address the horrific events in the story, you know, the part about murdering children. We can grasp onto the fluid, though at times fleeting, sentimentality of Christmas. This makes sense, since this murderous episode in Matthew's Gospel is one whose purpose is to demonstrate a tyrannical leader's attempt to eradicate all hope. And who among us wants to face that possibility? Losing hope after such a wonderful holiday. And so we try to make sense of it, try to make it relevant to our current day, mirroring the stories against current events so as to make it more relatable, bringing the scriptures into the 21st century, as it were. And there is certainly enough for us to do this, isn't there? If we want an almost exact parallel, we can just look at what is happening at our very own border. Children taken from their parents while others die of preventable illnesses. We don't have to go far. But even if we find the most exact event in our own time to which we can compare this horrible story, we are still quite safe given our social location, aren't we? We can investigate, contemplate, even judge from a safe distance. We get to observe the story, whether it be the one from the first century Palestine or the one to which we are relating it to in the 21st century. We get to identify the holy families, the magis, the mourning women, the shepherds, sitting right here in the comfort of the pew. And when it gets too uncomfortable, we can leave. We can leave the sad story in the Bible for another year. We can just turn off the TV or the NPR station or close the laptop and we can walk away. But 
what happens if we actually enter this story? After all, we claim to be a people of the story, don't we? Perhaps in order to make this story more relevant from our current social locations, we should actually enter it and try to personally identify with the characters. And let's so do that. Who among you, in this place and time, can identify with the Holy Family? This ragtag threesome running for their lives, really or metaphorically for our purposes. There's a dad, good old Joe, whose evidence of peril consists of a dream telling him to run. We like to also think there's a donkey, but let's face it, this man was dirt poor, so that's just a pipe dream. He is not only responsible for himself, but also responsible for his new family. A family not of choice, but out of necessity, if we remember our Advent readings. And he's probably still wondering if they should be his family, all things considered. He could just leave and go off by himself. After all, it would be easier to slip away quietly from the ruckus and the chaos that will eventually ensue. He could convince himself that he has no responsibility since none of this was really his choice to begin with. Who would really notice anyway? Or perhaps it's Mary, this once naive teen, trusting that all would be well since, after all, it was God who asked her to take this on. Having carried this child under the most tenuous of circumstances, she must have been wondering constantly if she were safe or would she eventually be rejected by Joe at all. And then after having lived in that anxiety-producing muck for nine months, she has to schlep to Bethlehem on the back of a lumpy donkey, give birth under filthy, cold, humiliating circumstances, only to then be told she has to hightail her exhausted body into the desert because an insecure monarch is gunning for her and her newborn. What about the babe himself? Can anyone relate to the helplessness of this infant, sensing the anxiety of his parents, no less without any kind of understanding as to what is really going on. Perhaps he is also feeling a pain in his belly for lack of nourishment, but unable to really comprehend the circumstances beyond the confusing mix of his parents' emotion, their fear and his own sense of discomfort in his mother's arms. Well, what of the Magi? Do you relate to the Magi? Who, having been warned in a dream that they should not go back to Herod, but return home by another route. Did they leave in haste, worried mostly about their own hides, seeking better pastures, as it were, to avoid the impending slaughter? Have you ever wondered what could have been if they had stuck around to defend those who were targeted because they wanted to avoid Herod? Sure, it defeats the purpose of Matthew wanting to compare the Holy Family to that of the first Joseph, you remember him, of the many colors fame, and to Moses bringing the Hebrew out of Egypt, I get all that, but still, don't you wonder if they could have done more to prevent what happened? I'm so sorry, I meant, don't you wish that you could have done more? 
Or is it the lamenting, heartbroken into a million pieces mother you find most relatable in this moment? The agony of wondering why God has seemingly abandoned you, leaving you with the most devastating sense of loss and disequilibrium, leaving you in that suspended state of longing for what is gone while raging at all of the injustice of it all. And then there is Herod himself. Who here in this moment can relate best to Herod? <laughs> I know you're laughing at that. Here sits the insecure monarch on a throne of disillusionment and a false sense of control and power. And while his power is limited, he is still identified as a leader. He's just forgotten that he is, in name, king of the Jews. And beholden first and foremost to the sworn covenant between God and God's people. But alas, behind all his bluster, he is insecure and his power is limited. Thus he craves and reacts from the desire to get as much as he can, even if it was never his to begin with. He is quick to blame anyone, even an infant, for his inadequacies and self-serving needs. And when that perceived little bit of power is threatened, he lashes out in fear and anger, resolving to do whatever he can to maintain, ironically, that which he never had to begin with. His only focus, getting rid of the one who he thinks poses the greatest threat to his throne. And of course, in the process, leaves a mess in his wake, destroying the lives of so many. Some die, some run away, some just curl up and become immobilized, again wondering where their God is in the mess. Again, I wonder about all the what-ifs had he sought counsel of the Magi and approached with humility rather than fear and anger. Now, I'm guessing I'm willing to take bets that there's not one person in here who identifies with Herod. But I'm also willing to take best that that was the moment that you started to identify others who reminded you of Herod. Yes? Careful, because if that's what you did, then you are Herod. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, do we? However, if we've been busy trying to hold on to power, manipulate circumstances for our own gain, thinking that we're the ones with all the wisdom and understanding of how things should be, forgotten our covenant with our beloved and one another, lashed out with blame and violence, driving each other away from being able to flourish, then we are Herod. I told you you would be afflicted with discomfort. Many years ago, I was going through a very painful breakup. On any given day, at any given moment, my emotions would swing between believing that I was to blame 100% for everything that had gone wrong, yet in the next moment, just to completely torture myself, I would do a complete 180 and blame it all on her. There was a never moment 
when this shift wasn't completely and utterly distracting me and literally making me want to throw up. Gratefully, I had a pretty brilliant therapist at the time who, if he could have done so appropriately, would have grabbed me by the lapels to shake me out of this spinning. But instead, he said, Claire, no matter how you look at this, all things being equal, you are only ever responsible for 50% of a relationship. You are responsible for 50% of everything that goes right. And you are responsible for 50% of everything that goes wrong. No more, no less. Work on your part, he said. It's the only part you can fix. Ironically, taking on my 50% and abdicating the other allowed me to take responsibility for what was mine and to let go of what wasn't. Out of this wisdom came the opportunity for reconciliation and restoration. And get this, even if the other party doesn't do their work. You must acknowledge your 50% and you must do your work for there to be any kind of whole resolution. My dear friends, the world into which the Christ child was born was profoundly broken. And I think we can say it remains so today. His birth was filthy, violent, and humiliating. And yet he arrived, and every year we celebrate this reminder of God showing up in the most obscure places if we can take the time to notice. This church is broken. It has experienced its own version of pain and violence and humiliation. And you may ask, Claire, who do you think you are to say this to us? Well, I'm one who came from this place. I have had glimpses of how things have been and how things can be. I know what happens here from a multitude of perspectives, and I am invested in you. But I want to be very clear. Your problems are first world problems. This is a well-endowed church in every capacity, no matter your perceived anxieties in this moment. It is rich in numbers, rich in talent, rich in money, rich in reputation and power for good or otherwise. And mostly, this church is rich in potential. Amen? But with this potential comes immense responsibility. Now, this sermon today is inviting you to imagine or relate to the characters. This is a sermon of privilege. You can take it or leave it. It can be profound fodder for transformation, or it may have been a complete waste of your time. Either way, for us to sit here and wrestle with the metaphors and inferences of this sermon, to sit with grief, Conflict and wondering whatever comes next is an exercise that can only happen in a privileged community.
So get busy. Get busy. Humble yourselves before our God and before one another as you work diligently toward reconciliation and restoration. Do what needs to be done. Be willing to release that which doesn't work and hasn't for years in order to answer the call of this community. Because quite frankly, there is a world on the margins waiting for those of us here in the center to get our acts together so as to assure that there never be another Herod in this world. Grieve. Put on your burlap bags and cover yourselves in ashes. Converse. Listen to one another. Argue if that's what it takes. Contemplate possibilities. Be humble always. Reconcile. Restore, rinse and repeat as many times as necessary, and then get to work. For God so loved the world that we are sent into it to bring good news to the poor, to lift up the downtrodden, and to bring justice to all of creation. Do your work so that you can do the work to which you, to which we have all been called. And the people said, 